You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 81, covering the week of July 17th through July 21st, 2017. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, always a little housekeeping. If you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media, and you can find us on social media at the following places. On Facebook, you can find us at Abbeville Institute, so you can uh, like us there. If you want to follow us on Twitter, just go out and look for Abbeville I-N-S-T, and you can subscribe to our YouTube page. Also, remember that we do exist on your generous contributions alone. If you do like the podcast, the programs, and all the things we do on the website, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the Abbeville Institute. You can do so by going to abbevilleinstitute.org at the top of the page. Click on, the little, click on the little menu where it says Support, Memberships for Individuals, and we have various membership options. You can donate monthly, as little as, as, little as $3 a month if you are a student, or uh, $5 a month if you're not a student, or you can donate annually. We have a $25 annual donation for a student or a $50 annual donation starting at if you're not a student. And, of course, uh, we have various options beyond that. So please consider doing those things. Uh, now, let's talk about the – oh, also, if you want to uh, get on our email list, this is one thing I forgot to mention. If you want to get on our email list, go on out to abbevilleinstitute.org and give us an email address, and we'll send you our Daily Dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and our weekly email on Saturday, which includes this podcast, along with an article of interest and the uh, articles from the week as well. So it's also a way for us to communicate with you when we have programs coming up um, or other things going on at the Institute. So uh, please consider doing that. It's painless, it's free, and you do get Kirkpatrick Sales Emancipation Hell as a gift to your inbox. So all that great stuff is out there waiting for you if you just head on over to abbevilleinstitute.org. Okay, let's talk about the material for the week then. Uh, This is our first week back from the summer school. Uh, We had a really good summer school, the 15th annual summer school, and I was happy to be able to participate in that. We had a lot of good lectures and uh, great material. We'll be putting the lectures online in the very near future, so you can go on out there and listen to those if you were not able to attend. And if you were able to attend, you can uh, listen to them again. So one of the major themes at the summer school it was a, a discussion of Southern identity and how does a Southerner cope with uh, the attack on the South? How do, you, how do you maintain Southern identity in the face of such withering assaults? I, I, I think that in so many ways the South has not been under this much fire since the early days of Reconstruction. Uh, It is uh, tremendous in what's going on. Of course, there was just uh, the vote in Tampa uh, this past week to take down another Confederate monument. Uh, And so what we wanted to do there was try to explain that, first of all, this is not new. Uh, My talk on the New South explained that, you know, Southerners were still under attack in the early 20th century and late 19th century, but that actually galvanized a Southern identity. And I think that's something we hope would come out of this. You know, Southerners are going to hopefully realize, you know, we are under attack and uh, we need to uh, galvanize our support for each other and push back against some of this stuff. Uh, Unfortunately, because of some of the institutional uh, apparatuses that have been set in place, which we'll talk about for the piece that ran on Friday this week, that's that's a much more difficult task than it was in the early 20th century, 
when your major universities and higher education institutions in the South were still dominated by Southerners, and those who viewed themselves as Southern, even if they didn't uh, always agree with the policies of the South at the time, or uh, you know they had critiques of the South, they still identified as Southern, and they still promoted uh, a Southern culture. But uh, nowadays, you just don't have as much of that. So uh, the systematic dismantling of this Southern identity has been pretty thorough in, uh, in the last, say, 40 to 50 years. And um, hopefully things like the Abbeville Institute will help push back against this. Uh, this is what uh, the, the goal of the Institute is, is to educate and uh, create this type of uh, unity among Southern people and an understanding of who they are and give them the ammunition to fight back. Uh, you're going to have people attacking you relentlessly in the future. So it's, it's important that we understand what Southern identity means, what the basis of that is. And I, uh, when I was um, in a seminar with students, you know, um, and I, I posed the question, can, can a Southern identity still survive without, say, a farm? Is it only occupation? Is it uh, so what is it that makes people Southern? And one student said, well, it's something that you just don't think about. It's just something you are. But one of the things that came out of that, and of course we've run a, an article about that, is manners. Uh, if you look around at American society today, there's very little in the way of manners. Uh, particularly on social media, it's just a, a free-for-all. People are, are rude, abusive. Uh, and so uh, manners are lacking uh, among uh, people that uh, engage each other. Now, I think that, that in, in, a, in a more personal environment, you would not see so much in the way of uh, abuse because you're standing in front of someone and there's always a, a reprisal or repercussions for that. But online, it's anonymity, or even if, it's, if you're not anonymous, you're still sitting behind a computer and you don't have to see this person. And so we, we engage in, in uh, discussion and, and other things in a less civilized way. And I think this is carried out into many other ways, uh, many other facets of American society as well. People have far less respect for each other than they used to. And so one of the things we could do about that in the South, I think, is to engage in a dose of culture and civilization through manners. Uh, when, when people don't act in a civilized way without showing manners, they're barbarians. And uh, that's what we have to start calling people out on this. You know? and, and so I would hope that that part of, of Southern society could be rekindled among you know, Abbeville Institute listeners and followers. And even when you don't like people, uh, you can still uh, have manners towards them and still uh, at least uh, engage them, as, as Clyde Wilson pointed out, as another fallen soul, you know, another imperfect soul. Uh, and that is the thing that, uh, that made the South uh, what it was in so many ways was, was manners. And, of course, we ran an article uh, about that and put it out in our weekly email last week. Uh, so I think that uh, that is one thing that uh, could help salvage this Southern identity. But beyond that, let's, let's, we had a heavy dose of literature at the, uh, at the summer school, a lot of discussion about people like Flannery O'Connor and, and others, and, so, um, and, and Faulkner, of course. So this week we started out with uh, a poetry sampler, and one of the things that I think one of the enduring qualities about the South is its literature, and Southerners have a story to tell. And um, 
the the point made at the summer school is that Southerners have a, a, a soul, um, and you have to have that. But more importantly, I think that the thing that makes Southern literature so good is it's a story of home uh, and a people that have an identity. And you know, Flannery O'Connor used to say that you know Southerners can talk about uh, the odd because they can recognize it for what it is. And so it's it's I think it's important to kindle you know and and uh, you know to to foster this Southern identity through literature. And uh, these two poems are they're they're by uh, Abbeville scholars, people that have written for us before. They're not. Uh, they're not poems that are, um, you know, taken out of some dusty anthology somewhere. Southerners are still writing good material, and we need to encourage that. And so every now and then we will run new works of poetry or, um, you know, original uh, short stories and things like that at the Abbeville Institute. So these uh, particular poems, are, the first two are written by Walt Garlington, and the third by Stephen Borthwick. And um, Stephen Borthwick actually wrote a wonderful little uh, piece about uh, Orthodox Christianity in the South uh, and how it's, uh, how it's growing um, and uh, why it's growing. And uh, so I think that was, um, that, that was a very interesting piece. But uh, this particular poem that he wrote, is, it's very good. Uh, it kind of uh, integrates this relationship between the Old South and the New and what's going on there, um, where we have modernity com- you know, combating uh, this old agrarian tradition. And I think that's it's a wonderful little uh, expression of that. And um, same thing with uh, Garlington's Dirt Dauber. Uh, and it talks about, you know, it's, it's this uh, conflict between modernity and nature and uh, in the through the eyes of a dirt dauber in so many ways or at least the killing of a dirt dauber and the first the patriarch's clan again this bond between family and i think that uh one of the things that was pointed out uh between say faulkner uh and other writers hemingway for example the difference between them is that uh, at the summer school is that you know Faulkner talked about granddaddy. Granddaddy said this, or daddy said this, and, and Hemingway never brought that up. There was that that continuity between family and Southern literature, that, that tie and family relationships that is very important in the Southern tradition. Where are you from to identify family, to identify people that you relate with? And I think that's an important part of understanding the Southern tradition because clan and community are very important in the South. Where you come from, where are your genes, who's your blood, who are your kin. And uh, it's not to say that these things aren't important in other places, but it's the way that they're, that they're explained in the South and identified in the South that make them unique, I think, in some ways in terms of the Southern identity. So these are wonderful little poems. It doesn't take long to read them. And I know that a lot of times when we run literature like this, uh, people <laughs> uh, people don't read it as much uh, because it's not something political. Our, our political pieces always get more uh, more traction. But uh, I think it's important to get a little 
Have a little poetry in your life. Uh, you should always read a little poetry, uh, understand, read a little literature, so you can uh, uh, identify with the people around you. And on that, in, in that, uh, in that regard, we ran a book review on Tuesday by Randall Ivey on uh, Catherine Savage Brossman's um, "The uh, Southern Women Writers and the Vision of Goodness," and. Um, she was one of our speakers at the summer school and did a very good job. Uh, she is an excellent poet. And uh, this particular uh, piece is focused on this book that she wrote. And, of course, Randall Ivey is one of our scholars as well. Uh, he's a very good uh, author in his own right and uh, writes uh, you know, excellent little short stories. We've run several of them on the website. And uh, this is a, an interesting um, uh, book. One of the reasons why... In, in, uh, Mr. Ivey points this out that uh, to call them southwestern writers is a little bit of a, of a, might be a, a disconcerting. He says because uh, you know Willa Cather, who was uh, from Virginia but reared in Nebraska, she she spent uh, most of her life in the Northeast, but she would travel to the Southwest and um, write about that particular region, and so uh, it, it's it's bringing these people to our consciousness today. A lot of people don't even know who Willa Cather is. And I think that um, that's the important part of this book. But uh, it's also important uh, that uh, to understand why Dr. Brussman brings these people to the fore. And so uh, Mr. Ivey points that out. She says, he says, uh, for a traditionalist, Brossman is well-versed in contemporary literary theory and does not ignore it but she does not allow her subjects to become cardboard cutouts for some particular political cause or, uh, uh, or um, series of esocentrisms. Uh, and so this is important to understand. It's not, it's not putting these people within, you know, they're, they're a feminist, but that's all they are. Uh, and uh, she brings out the, she, she gives these characters, these people depth, these writers depth and understanding where they are and who they are. And of course, where they're from, and that's that identity that we have to we have to uh, you know get out of this stuff. Uh, and so, normally, uh, uh, Dr. Brosman is writing poetry, and we're actually going to publish some of her poems in a couple of weeks on the website. But um, this is a very good book uh, in terms of as an academic work. Uh, it's published by McFarland Press, but uh, it's very good in uh, bringing out. Uh, who these writers were and why they still are important, and I think that's something that we have to uh, we have to understand. You know, not uh, we have to where these people come from. You know, um, for example, Willa Cather comes from Virginia and Nebraska, but where they come from is important. Where you're from matters in how you view the world. And so, uh, Mr. Ivy did a very nice job with this review and. Uh, if you are interested in Southern literature, I would recommend picking up uh, this uh, particular book by uh, Dr. Brosman, Southwestern Women Writers and the Vision of Goodness. Now, carrying forward on the artistic theme, uh, we ran a piece on, uh, on Wednesday entitled uh, Leave the Monuments Alone, an Artistic Perspective by uh, Dr. Juliet Piers. And uh, Dr. Piers is a lecturer in Melbourne, Australia. And so she's not from the South. Uh, she looks at Confederate monuments through a world perspective. And I think that's 
that's important. Uh, we People in the United States focus on these things purely, purely in a very distorted way, uh, particularly those that are against these monuments and want to take them down. But she brings a nice uh, international perspective on what these monuments mean and what taking them down means uh, from an artist. And so her point is we should leave these things alone because they're works of art. Leave them where they are, even in the public spaces, because they were put there for a reason, as not just as a symbol of memorial, as a memorial symbol, but as a work of art. And she has a very good point. She says, quote, Besides Confederate monuments, no other artwork pay so spectacularly for the sins of their originating culture. Elastic tolerance is directed towards artworks from other societies whose values differ substantially from present-day norms. Much admired historic art includes Greeks, Roman, Egyptian, pre-Columbian, which was produced in societies where slavery and impressed labor flourished, as to some African, Asian, Oceanic, and Middle Eastern artifacts. Some Third Reich artworks are granted art historical traction, and Maoist and Stalinist imagery is warmly regarded as popular kitsch, in both instances sidelining the state-endorsed crimes behind the artwork's political context. The revelations of systematic abuse of children and First, Na and First Nation peoples by various churches uh, currently makes no real impact upon the display of historical Christian art. Islamic art and architecture is separated from the popular tabloid stereotyping of Muslims as terrorists. So, again, all these other, pe all these other cultures, communities are allowed to have their art on public display everywhere. The Romans were, much, were a much more brutal slaveholding people than the Confederacy ever was. So, uh, and same thing with the Egyptians and the pre-Columbian peoples and the African societies. I mean, the, the Muslim societies, which uh, were enslaving Africans long before Europeans ever were. But all these things are allowed to exist. You look at, uh, you know, Stalinist Arc. The, these, this stuff is awful. The Stalinist regime was, uh, in, in so many ways, worse than the Nazi regime in terms of genocide. And yet, they're allowed, the, these communist monuments still are sitting all around Russia. They weren't taken down. Sitting all around Eastern Europe, they weren't taken down. You have, um, uh, you still have Nazi artwork and Nazi buildings. Uh, uh, that were that were half completed in Germany that weren't bulldozed. It's amazing that these things are still allowed to exist, and yet <clears throat> a Confederate soldiers' monument, a dedication to people who died, and and memorial are being moved and taken down, destroyed, vandalized. So I think it's important to understand, and she she points out people like Rhodes. In England, who's been allowed to his statues have been allowed to stay, even though you know Rhodes is uh, so uh, commonly vilified for his interest in Africa and the country of Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. But these things are allowed to exist, and yet a simple soldier's monument somehow offends people so much that it has to come down, and, and this is blocking uh, progress in America when it does nothing to uh, help alleviate crime or poor education or any of these things. This is just a deflection for real problems. And as we're going to get into on the piece on Friday, and explaining why this is going on. 
but it's important to understand these things from an artistic perspective, and I think that's something that's often lost. These things are beautiful works of art. These monuments, they're, they're wonderful. And so if we don't understand them from that perspective, we are really missing the boat. Uh, and people need to be defending them from a variety of different ways and pointing out the hypocrisy behind taking these monuments down. We're just not doing a very good job of it. And of course, the political traction because of guilt, supposed guilt is all, in the other, is all against us. But um, this is uh, a motivism of the worst kind. It's, it's voting with your heart and not with your mind. Uh, and, and unfortunately, it's voting with your heart in an improper way. But uh, there's a, a great uh, uh, modern philosopher, Alcidair McIntyre, who has written about this. And, uh, you know, motivism as a real problem moving forward in politics. Uh, so I, I think that that's one of the major issues we're confronted with today is this emotional response to things, which is just, it's illogical, of course, but this is how people vote. And one thing you'll see if you look at how people interact with each other, and I see it with students all the time, when they answer a question, they say, I feel instead of I think. And that is an important distinction to make. They feel everything instead of thinking about things. And so uh, it, it's, it's, imperative that one of the things we try to do in discussing with people is saying you don't really feel these things you you think these things and if you're feeling these things then that's you're not thinking and so start thinking uh, these attacks on confederate memorials are not thinking they're feeling and uh it's it's irrational and illogical all right. Uh, on Thursday, we ran a piece entitled uh, The, the uh, Poe's War of the Literati, and this is about Edgar Allan Poe. And a lot of people don't... Look, Poe is one of the few people that's a Southern literary figure who's still widely studied. You have Flannery O'Connor, and you have William Faulkner, and then you have Edgar Allan Poe. And that's because Poe was an honorary Yankee, as, as Clyde, like, Clyde Wilson likes to point out. These people become honorary Yankees. Poe has been adopted as one of their own, with an honorary Yankee. Here he is. He's an American, meaning he's an honorary Yankee. But uh, Poe was a Southerner to the core. In fact, uh, when he was alive, he was attacking the North all the time, uh, particularly through the Southern Literary Messenger, which he, he uh, edited. And uh, he was highly critical of northern writers who would ignore everything from the south. And particularly in the 1840s, uh, as the sectional conflict was heating up, Poe became much more rigid in his defense of the south and the southern literary community. Uh, and northerners picked up on this. And they started critiquing Poe quite extensively and started making up all kinds of, all the stories we have about Poe that, you know, he was this degenerate, drug addict, all these other things. A lot of that comes from uh, northern writers who wrote about Poe who hated Poe after his death. They made up some of these things so that Poe would be uh, thrown in the gutter, so to speak. And the South and the Southern literary tradition would be thrown in the gutter because Poe was so focused on saving it from northern critics. Uh, and one of the um, main culprits in this 
particular assault against Poe was a northern literary critic named Griswold. And, I mean, just, just that name, Griswold, right? It sounds, it sounds Yankee. Uh, but uh, Griswold was highly critical of everything the South did. And then, of course, because Poe started defending the South, Griswold became highly critical of Poe. Poe, for example, was very laudatory of William Gilmore Sims. Uh, he, he called The Wigwam in the Cabin, you know, Sims's work, The Wigwam in the Cabin, quote, the best novelist which this country has upon the whole produced. And uh, he called uh, Murder Will Out, which was another uh, story, short story by Sims, the best ghost story ever, ever written. Uh, and this is coming from Edgar Allan Poe. So it's important to understand, you know, he loved uh, A.B. Longstreet's uh, Georgia Scenes, Poe did. And it's important to understand that this, this uh, identity, this Southern identity, was taking place outside of these political discussions of slavery. Southerners knew themselves conscious, as consciously Southern, even in terms of literature. So Southern identity is larger than, and, and you'll have historians try to tell you it's only slavery or only race. Southern identity was larger than that. Uh, and, and it was found in literature as an expression of culture long before you had these, or even during the time of these political conflicts, but it was something deeper than that. And that's also an important part to bring out about Southern identity. It's something deeper than just politics. You know, again, all of our pieces on politics are quite well read. Those on culture and literature are not. But this is something that needs to be corrected if we're going to push back against this attack on the South. Uh, and this particular piece is written by Harry Lepo. Harry Lepo is a uh, professor at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. And he's related to Edgar Allan Poe. He's written a number of books on theology and philosophy and, uh, of course, on Poe. And uh, this is a very good piece. And um, he concludes the piece with this. For all the responsible scholarship which has cleared Poe's reputation, Griswold and the Yankee literati won the War of the Literati. The public has accepted the Griswold stories. Even this article was intended to discuss Poe as a proponent and defender of Southern writers was required to stir Griswold's muck once again. Uh, and I think that's important. You know, there were people trying to salvage Poe's reputation in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, but even when you go into a uh, college classroom today and you're going to get a, a dose of, <clears throat> of Poe, you're going to get the Griswold attack. Just offhand. I mean, they just, they just bring it out there. Uh, even though there were people pushing back against this and explaining that it's a little bit, uh, or not just a little bit, but it was uh, fabricated by a person who hated Edgar Allan Poe. Now, why is all this happening? So finally on Friday, we ran a piece entitled The Origins of the Neo-Marxist Attack on the South by Norman Black. And uh, Mr. Black is a journalist. He's a great supporter of the Institute. And uh, he, he followed up uh, John Devaney's piece, Southern Identity in the Southern Tradition, which we published on the 5th of July. Uh, with an explanation of where this stuff comes from. And he points to 
uh, Gramsci, who is a, a, an Italian Marxist, and he calls him a neo-Marxist. Now, the uh, people like Gramsci um, believe that what you had to do there there was it was middle class hegemony as black points out consists of thoughts which are in turn embedded into numerous cultural institutions which produce and reproduce it so what we're looking at here is thought control and according to to gramsci and his and his acolytes the ruling class dominates this is from black the ruling class dominates culture diverse us society through their cultural hegemony Cultural hegemony consists of their beliefs, explanations, perceptions, values, and mores, which have become the accepted cultural norm and universally valid dominant ideology, which then justifies the social, political, and economic status quo as natural and inevitable, perpetual and beneficial for everyone, rather than an artificial social construct that benefits only the ruling class. So what, what you have to do, what, what they start doing... Uh, is the the Gramsci uh, the Gramsci acolytes view society um, through terms like equality, fairness, and exploitation, and they do this to attack every element of traditional American society. And you find this all throughout our cultural and academic institutions today, and it's done almost. Unknowingly, the, the Gramsci critique of American society has become so saturated in mainstream pop culture and mainstream the mainstream academy that it's just done without people even realizing they're doing it. Um, uh, Ryan Walters sent me an email about a new HBO series that's going to come out uh, after this uh, Game of Thrones, which finishes up, which is... Uh, in so many ways, uh, a disgusting portrayal of humanity. But um, this new series is going to be just as violent, but it's going to focus on the Confederacy, and it's a alternate universe in which the Confederacy won. And so uh, it's going to have this Gramsci view that uh, the South, I'm sure, is going to be demonic, and uh, you're going to have uh, these noble Northerners going out and trying to take out these awful Southerners. Because this idea of equality, fairness, exploitation, it's in, it's in everything. It saturates everything we do. And that comes from our academic institutions. The professors who gained tenure in the 60s now push this, and they hire their own little sycophants that think like them. There's no real diversity of thought. Uh, this is a disgusting uh, trajectory in American political and social and cultural thought. But that's where we've gotten. And Gramsci this neo-Marxist, what we would call cultural Marxism, is behind all of it. If you would tear down traditional America, and you, what do you replace it with is the question. Well, we replace it with these uh, bland ideas of equality, fairness, and non-exploitation. But that's not really a culture. That's a negative. So what beautiful, what, what valuable or positive thing replaces that. Well, there's nothing to replace it. This is, this is why the South is so much under attack, because it is a real culture that the neo-Marxists cannot stand because it's traditional. And, of course, it's based heavily on Christianity. 
And so when you tear that down, you, you don't replace it with anything, really, except for this very strange view of society. And that is the point. You replace it with nothing but these terms, these, these you know, hollow terms like equality and fairness. What does that mean? And you replace it with a political conception. So, as, as Black points out, you really can't have a culture based on politics. But we try. I mean, this is, this is essentially what, what's happening in America today. It's a culture based on politics. You can't do that. It has to be something deeper than that. It has to be a regional or you know, group identity, uh, clan, community. This is going back to literature. This is why these things are so important. A people, a place, home. That's why it's important to have a foundation of those things moving forward in terms of Southern identity. So all these pieces were wonderful. I hope you take the time to read them. Until next time, good day. Mm-hmm.